Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Jude. We live in a world that is against the ways of Jesus. It seems that everywhere we look, the truth of God's word is under attack, even within the church. We as believers are called not to cower in the face of these attacks, but to boldly proclaim what is true and defend what is right. And this is what the book of Jude is all about. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. If you're standing, go ahead, remain standing, grab your Bibles and open them up to Jude 5. That's not chapter 5, that's verse 5. There's only one chapter. I was really been thrilled, and I thought about this this past weekend. I got an opportunity to go and speak to a men's conference, and I did get to touch on some of these things from Jude, because I think it is so timely and uh, for the day that we're living in right now. And so when I was going through my studies and realized what book had we not done for a while uh, and that I wanted to cover specifically before we left the fellowship here, uh, this was definitely one that the Lord put on my heart. I think it's just something that speaks to the day that we're in. And um, I, I feel very blessed. But we've now in our third study in here. So we are in verse 5 of Jude where we're going to continue this morning. If you have not been here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first couple of messages as we've been going through the situation that is uh, setting the, the, the case here. But he writes, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept for eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment seat of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire." You may be seated. Here we get to the consequence of unbelief or the peril of apostasy. As to kind of bring it a little bit in context here, as we've seen that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus himself, had become a leader in the church. He's a brother of James. Born again, writes this letter to born-again believers that they might be, I think, challenged. He had said, first of all, he had wanted to write a letter that was more encouraging. No one ever wants to really, you know, when you're, you're a pastor, we said last time, it's like, you don't really want to talk about judgment and you don't want to talk about the fire of hell and you don't want to talk about those things, but they're there. And it's true. And we as God's people, we need to hear what God has to say about it. And so, We don't want to shrink away from it. So he said it was urgent. I believe the Holy Spirit just directed his path in a whole other way where I have to write to you about these things. These things that I just really need to to pour out my heart. And, And the reason is because rather than there being a Jesus movement where people are drawn closer to Jesus and his wonderful grace, there was a movement of apostasy that was taking place within the church that was threatening to destroy the church if it goes unheeded or unattended. 
Now that word heresy there is an opinion or doctrine teaching at variance with the orthodox or accepted doctrine, especially of a church or a religious system of doctrine. I kind of look at it as a heresy is a teaching doctrine that defies the sound doctrine of the whole counsel of God given to us in the scripture. Anything that contradicts the truth about who Christ is, what Christ taught, what Christ did, and what Christ accomplished through his sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascendance to glory as witnessed in the context of the whole of scripture, which all point to Jesus at some point and the only means by, of God by which man can be redeemed and be saved. That which is, stands to the orthodox teaching of the apostles. But the exhortation that he gives to believers is this, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And he gives the reason why in verse four, if you wanna look at it with me, he said, for certain persons, have crept in unnoticed those who are long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These apostates, false teachers, had crept into the church unnoticed. They had come by, by stealth as Satan's undercover agents, if you will, and they're teaching these false doctrines and seeking to lead other astray with these doctrines. In fact, what they're teaching is that grace gives you license to sin. These apostates are emissaries of Satan. They were themselves unbelieving deceivers. They are destined for condemnation, Jude said. They're ungodly, ungodlike, they're godless, they are rebellious, they're disobedient, who deny the master and Lord Jesus Christ. But the biggest problem is not just who they are, but what they want to do. They want to turn others away from their faithful obedience to the Lord. Now we know this, that false teaching comes in all shapes and sizes. I mean, sometimes they come through very overt deceptions that contradict blatantly the Christian faith. We talked a little bit about the Gnostics in the early church and the enlightened ones who claim to possess this super spiritual knowledge of, that blatantly contradict and denied the truth of Jesus in the same way that our cults that we know of in our culture today do the same thing. But false teaching, as we also saw, comes in more subtle forms of religious expression. Sometimes they come through a spiritual liberalism of those who, again, they claim to have a spiritual knowledge more based on their own reason and, and the, rather than the trust of the word. And so you have those who are on this side who are very liberal, they deny the word. Then you have others on the other side who are the legalists. And the legalists, like the Pharisees, were centered on their own attempt to gain God's favor by their own good works, their adherence to the law. Now, last week we saw that both the liberal and the legalist completely misses the pure grace of God, which is completely Christ-centered and, and others-minded, that is looking to Jesus and Jesus alone as our Redeemer, that it's about what he's done, not about what we've done, and we have to believe what he's done. And that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's perfect. It has no need for for, to, for, for someone to come along and say, well, I need to just kind of butter it up a little bit. No, it is perfect. 
For Christ alone is perfect, his redemption is perfect, and all who repent and trust in him for their salvation, we have a perfect work of grace that is working us through a perfect gospel, and that Jesus is now working through his love for us to sanctify us and cleanse us from sin. We were sanctified in the past. We're being sanctified now. And one day we're going to be just like Jesus when we're in his presence. And I look forward to that. That's going to be a good thing. I like what Paul says to the Philippians. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches this, and I hope you've learned it by now, is that our flesh will never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, <laughs> never, ever <laughs> bring glory to God. Our flesh, this old man, this carnal nature, that we're all dealing with. And we'll be looking at this when we get into the book of 1 Corinthians very soon. Is never going to de desire the things of God. Did you guys know that? That it is just as rotten when you're 80 as it was when you were 20. It's never converted. It's never converted. Self, this carnal nature, has always been our biggest problem. And it's never going to do that, which is what's which is righteous. Only the work of grace in our life can do that. In essence, we saw that Jesus came to save us from us. He came to save me from me. And so Jesus now as disciples, as Christ, he's, he calls us to take up our cross and do what? Crucify ourselves, die to ourselves, that he might live. And the truth is, is you can go through your life and you can try to do it, or you can die and accomplish it. Because you're gonna try or you're gonna die. But if you're looking at yourself to kind of make your way through to this, you're not gonna make it. We need his grace. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. But the believer chooses the pathway of Christ that is set before us. Now, Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. But in essence, what these apostates are teaching us is that grace offers us now the freedom not from sin, but freedom to sin. Freedom now to indulge in any carnal desire or passion that we have. And of course, there's a lot of people who would receive that. It's like, that sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I get to do whatever I wanna do for me and indulge myself in my flesh. But what he's talking about here is licentiousness or lasciviousness in some of your translations or lewdness. But in all cases, it means free from moral restraint which is typically expressed through, moral, or through sexual perversion. These ones are antinomian. That means they have no law. They are without law. And what they're doing is they're attempting to normalize acts of sexual perversion within the church. They said, hey, you know, it's, it's okay. This is, this is cool. We can have it now. We can go along. The flesh, the carnal nature, 
We know this is, is never gonna do that, but it's like the alarm that he says here, these people are leading others astray. Why? Because when you give false teaching, there are some people who just wanna hear it. Whether it's the prosperity doctrine or whatever it is, it's like there's people out there who tell me that I can, please, I can go ahead and serve my whole life for myself and get cars and houses and, and it all becomes about what I want rather than what God wants. It's all about our flesh. And I think we're seeing that on a day in the outward visible church of those who I may identify themselves as Christians, but they've denied the faith by the way that they're living. And they, for the sake of expediency and relevancy, they've bought into the world's lies and are now seeking to normalize sin. And not only just sin, but I mean sexual perversion even within the church. And it's grieving. And it's grieving to the heart of God. You know, sadly, many have been deceived. I think, again, 2 Timothy, I read this often. I think it's so important. Paul, and I was talking about this with the men this week. It's interesting that he is writing this at a time when the church is going through tremendous difficulty. He's in prison, ready to be executed. Himself, he knows, and he knows persecution's on the rise, but he speaks of the future and what the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. He says to Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money, and they'll be boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And this is his word, he says to them, he says, avoid such men as these. In other words, stay away from them when you see these things happen. And I think that's a pretty good description of the culture that we're living in. But he says of those, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, tragically, I don't, again, there's never been a time in history that we have had the Bible more accessible than we do in our day. I mean, I venture to say that most of your homes have at least three Bibles. Some of you may have 20, I don't know. I got a whole bunch of them in my house. I got, how can I get to these people who need them? You know, the truth is it's never been more abused than it has been in our day by those who have it, who actually use it to teach their heretical doctrines. And what we said last week, and I hope you hold on to this, and this is a truth that I want to sink into your heart, is that you never judge the Holy Scripture against the standards of the culture you're living in. And that you're to always judge the culture you're living in against the standard of God's holy word. For the time will come, Paul writes to Timothy, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. And so what's happening in our day is this attempt by so many to make God more relevant and the Bible more relevant and palatable to the ears of the people. There's pastors today who kind of serving up these sermons that will leave out certain words that might be offensive, words like sin or judgment or hell or death and, and those things like, see, those words are negative. 
and I want you to feel good when you leave here, so they kind of leave them out. I remember Janet and I, many years ago, we took a position as youth pastors in, a, in Sacramento area in a church that we had never been, I never understood. I actually filled out an application for this particular church for a job to be their, their youth pastor. And I didn't know the difference of doctrine that much then, but I learned. And I figured it out one Sunday when the worship leader was, uh, the, the, I don't know what he was called, the worship leader. He was a song leader, actually. And the pastor went to him. He says, whatever you do, don't sing any songs with blood in them because blood is offensive. And we don't want to be gross. Okay, I'm in the wrong place. I am in the wrong place. And I'm, I'm just awakening to the fact of what people are being taught. I'm just awakened to it. And so today you got the user-friendly, seeker-friendly church, and it's able, you know, afraid to teach about sin, lest it offend the listener. And so they teach about things that make you feel good about yourself, doctrines, you know, doctrine they say, sound doctrine is divisive, so we would rather entertain you than do anything. After all, you're seekers. We want to get you in the door. And so they advertise, you know, come to our church for refreshing, contemporary, relevant, uplifting service and featuring 20-minute sermonettes for Christianettes, guaranteed to make you feel very good about yourself. <laughs> 20 minutes of comic relief and no offense, social messages guaranteed to tickle your ears. And of course, there are plenty of people out there that want to hear this stuff. And it's all over the place. And that, my heart, my heart's grieved, but I think how much more God's heart is grieved. I can't even imagine the depth of what God feels when he sees this and there's, when there's no conviction and there's no repentance and just nice religious service stuff, puffy stuff. And the problem is, while it may be true that there are in fact some who are out there who are seeking the truth, the question is, what truth are they gonna find when they get there? Where is that truth? Because if there is no repentance and there is no work of grace, these people are walking in a life of deception. They're living for themselves. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And people, this is exactly why. Whether it's here or someplace else, no matter where you go, you find someplace that sticks to the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's the power of God and his spirit working through this book. You can read it as just literature, but if you read it to allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, I'll tell you something, it's gonna open up your life to things you can't even think or imagine in your life. You see, like the doctor's scalpel that, cuts out the cancer, the same sword that cuts into us with the word of God is the same sword that seeks to cut out of us that which destroys us. And that's the wonderful thing about the word of God because there's times when we're going through this word and we laugh. I love to laugh. Hope you understand. I love to laugh. If anybody hangs around me, you know I'm, I'm ready. I'm geared. I'm geared up. There's times we laugh, but there's times we cry. There's times I read the word of God and I go, oh man, I feel so good. There's other times I go, oh Lord. Lord, you're hurting me today. There's times in mourn we dance, times we, you know, there's a time for everything we do. But here's the question. 
This is where Jude goes with this. To what, to what peril are people willing to reject and turn away from the truth, from this faith? Handed down once and all for all the saints that was given for our salvation. And the truth is that is no laughing matter. See, the apostates in Jude's day, they made a severe misjudgment concerning the truth about Jesus and his righteous judgment. They foolishly interpreted the long-suffering and the patience of God and tolerating the vile sins of the world as God's acceptance of the sin of the world. This is the same misjudgment I think many are making in our day. It's like, you know, after all, you look around and you see the parade of wickedness and, you know, you look in San Francisco, you look in New York and in Portland, Oregon, of all places, and you think, oh, Lord, look, all this stuff going on. You don't seem to be doing anything about it. And, it's, and the reasoning is, well, he must be okay with it. He must be just fine with it. And his people should be fine with it, too. And the truth is that we know from this, even from this passage, but many others, is, yeah, the time of judgment, God hasn't judged it yet. But it will come. At what peril do people turn away from the truth of the gospel? And to what end do we get to kind of set our own terms for our own relationship with God rather than accepted what he has given for us and a relationship with himself? So Jude, here in this portion that we're at today, and, and we're going to see here, he goes back to the Old Testament. He brings three Old Testament illustrations of the peril of unbelief and disobedience of immorality. He says, first of all, the peril of Israel's unbelief in the wilderness and the, the peril of the fallen angels and the rebellion and the peril of Sodom and Gomorrah and its gross immorality. By the way, I want you to take note of something that Jude places his emphasis on what they know from the Old Testament. It's this stuff that some people say, oh, we as New, Christ New Testament Christians, we don't need this. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. See, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You don't really going to fully understand the New Testament until you see how it fits and it aligns. Listen, you can understand the principles of, of, of our salvation. I see that in Scripture, but if you want to really get to the deep, listen, we've been saying this. The gospel is simple, but it is very deep. It is simple, 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 but there's a depth to it that we'll be growing in the knowledge of it for the rest of our lives. And so he says to verse five, therefore I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction Upon whom the ends of the ages have come, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He says, I want you to know that when God gave us these illustrations, he did for, as an example for us to learn from. And the truth is some of people that will never know it, the, the, the magnitude of these particular stories that he's talking about, the, the multiple critical lessons that come to us. And so I was looking at it, and I, and I hope I get farther next week, but I want today just deal with the peril of unbelief of Israel in the wilderness. Now, this historical story 
of a whole generation who refused and turned away from the faith that they had been brought in and they suffered because of it. And we know the story begins in the book of Exodus. Most of you know this story if you've been a believer and you've ever gone through your Bible. That time when the Israelites were living in bondage in Egypt, they were subjected to tremendous abuses as slaves. And ultimately, the people cried out to God to save them. And so God heard their prayer and he raised up a, a servant or a, a servant by the name of Moses as his prophet. And he sent them to go to Egypt so that he might deliver them out of Egypt and the cruelty of their slavery under Pharaoh. And so God sent Moses, not only to deliver the people from Egypt and the yoke of bondage, but he wanted him to lead them from too. He delivers them from bondage so that he can take them to blessing. There is a from to. Now, some believers, they get hung up in the from. He saved me from. No, he didn't save you just from. He saved you for and to. There's something that he wanted to do, and that's what God was doing with these people. And so God had designed it in such a way that not only would he display his amazing power among the Egyptians and even his own Israelites in such a way that when they finally comes time for them to be released, that they will be released with blessing and with riches to make their way to the land of blessing in Canaan. When Pharaoh's hard heart refused to obey God's word when Moses went to him, though Moses, through Moses the deliverer, God demonstrated his power and authority by sending plagues against the Egyptians. He turned the Nile River into blood. He sent plagues of frogs and gnats and flies that swarmed all the way throughout Egypt. It's an interesting story because we're told that Pharaoh's magicians were able to come and counterfeit these miracles, but what's so humorous about it is they could create more frogs, they could create more flies, but they couldn't make it better. All they ended up with is more devastation. So God sends them hailstorms and boils and tumors, afflicted both man and beast. He sends complete darkness over the land so that there's no light in the sky. The day is completely dark, and ultimately, the Lord cursed the firstborn of all man and beast unto death. And all the while, the people of Egypt, of Egypt, while they're going through all these plagues, Israel is completely untouched by all these plagues. God has preserved them. And in this final plague, we're told of the death of the firstborn of man and beast, that God provides a means of, of redemption for his people by which they can be spared that judgment that is to come. And so whoever would take the perfect lamb and sacrifice the lamb and then take some of the blood and apply it to the doorpost and to the mantle of that particular house, wherever the death angel passed through all the land, wherever the blood was applied, that house was spared the judgment of God. And that's a beautiful picture of our redemption, people. Wherever the blood of Jesus is applied, we're spared the judgment of God. Isn't that wonderful? But all these things happened to this nation. They were blessed. The whole nation testified to the awesome power of God in their behalf. And 
Finally, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh summons Moses back to him and he commands him, you know, he says, Moses, you got to go. It's time for you to go after all this. And then he even asked Moses for a blessing from God. And so that next morning, we're told that at, at dawn that Moses leads as many as two million of the Israelites out of Egypt on foot with livestock and all the riches of Egypt. One by one, the tribe after tribe, they begin making their way out. However, Pharaoh's heart is hardened once again, so he sends the army out to fetch the people back. And Pharaoh's army comes in and they hem the people in at the edge of the Red Sea. They've got no place to go. And as they're drawing closer, the Lord sends a pillar of cloud that walls off the Egyptians, holding them off at bay. Meanwhile, the children of Israel are on the edge of the sea and they're crying out to God to rescue them. And God delivers them, of course. We're told in Exodus 14, 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the land swept the sea back, a, a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall of them for their right hand and on their left. Afterwards, they passed the way through and they're looking back and there's the army of, of Pharaoh. They're kind of making their way in that same dry land and he raises up his arm and that same water that had, they've been delivered from now comes and it completely wipes out the whole army of Pharaoh. He delivers them from their enemies. And again and again, as you go through the story, it's just, if it, it, I love this portion, and I hope you fall in love with it too. If you don't know your Bible, listen, get acquainted with it. There's so many great things. But God proved himself over and over again to his people. He showed his power. The whole nation could testify to the awesome power of God. I mean, again, again in the wilderness. I mean, he led them with a cloud by day and a fire by night. When they were hungry, he fed them with manna that fell from the sky, enough for each day, for them to have enough for that day. And to cover the Sabbath, he gave them twice as much on Friday to cover them through that Sabbath day. He provided for them, he cared for them when they were, when they were complained about manna, he sent them quail. And he sent them down so much quail, they were sickened by it. You want quail? I'll give you quail. <laughs> when they're thirsty, he turns bitter water into fresh water. And we're out in the place where there's nothing in the wilderness and the desert. Who wants to live in the desert? I don't want to live in the desert, not without supplies. Especially with two million people grumbling, complaining, so the Lord causes water, streams of water to flow from rock. Just to let the people know, I got your back. I got you. I'm your God. I love you. I'm watching over you. And he fought for them. He dealt with their enemies again and again. People complained. They complained and they feared. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They thought, well, we were better off in slavery than we are out here, always living on the edge of death. But God kept providing miracle after miracle, demonstration after demonstration. And God had proved, he's communicated to his people over and over again, I love you. You're the apple of my eye. If you just trust me, I'll take care of you. If you just trust me with it all, I will meet a need for you 
that nothing else in the world can do for you if you would just turn to me and trust me. And he's proven himself that he can be trusted. He wanted nothing more than to bless his people. He was taking them from to. He's taking them from God's heart was only to deliver them from the yoke of slavery so that he could bring them to this place of blessing. And they saw his power displayed. They witnessed his heart for him time and time again. They accused God of bringing them out of the wilderness only to let them die. Have you ever felt that way? God, did you bring me out all this way now to just let me go? You see, they're on their way to Canaan, land flowing with milk and honey. But between Canaan and Egypt is a wilderness. But the wilderness was part of the story. It's necessary because it's in the wilderness where you learn. And the wilderness is where you learn faith. And the wilderness is where you learn how to trust God when you don't have anything. And the wilderness is where you learn how wise it is to obey the Lord when he directs you. All these things are learned in the wilderness. It's a school of preparation, if you will. It's where we learn to trust God. Listen, we are, some of you, you're in the wilderness. But you need to know it's, he's, he has you here to teach you and to show you how much he loves you and how good it is, how precious it is when you trust him with your life. That wilderness experience we know is, will test and prove our faith because we know, as with the Israelites, that day is gonna come when God's gonna tell them, here we are, Elena Canaan is gonna say, go ahead, I want you to cross the Jordan and I want you to take the land, it's yours. The only problem with that it's going to require faith. If they don't know faith and they cross that land, if they haven't learned obedience, they're not going to do very well. And so what they do is they send 12 spies to spy out the land. One from each tribe, Joshua and Caleb are among them, and they send these 12 out, and 10 of the, they come back together and 10 of them give their report. Hey, listen, it is good over there. It is really nice. It is milk and honey. There's luscious grapes. But there's some big people over there. I mean, they're big. These are, these are giants. And, and there's lots of them. And, uh, but... They have these fortified cities that people are living in, and there's no way that we'll ever be able to penetrate it. They're way too strong for us. There is just no way that we can do this. And they have kind of this grasshopper complex. I mean, they're too big and we're too little. There's no thing. What about God? What about God? And of the 12... Two of the spies come back, Joshua and Caleb. They come back with a good report. And I love what it says here, Joshua, Numbers 14, 5. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes when they heard the report of the others. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people or the land 
or they will, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. See, what the people did is they kind of did this exercise to democracy. They took a consensus, a vote, if you will. And they took, for the most guys, they will take the 10 against the two. We'll choose the path of, un, of unbelief and rebellion. And they start complaining about, well, just listen, let's just go back to Egypt. Let's just go back. And unbelief, they turn away from the truth, believing the lie rather than believing God, believing, looking to themselves that when God says today is the day, they say, ain't no way, not doing it. Rather than trust God and obey in the wilderness, they turn away in disbelief. And you question why? How could they? Why would these people have seen all these things after they've witnessed the things that they have seen? No other people in the world had seen things like this. God's power demonstrated in such a way and knowing that God was watching over them how could they turn away from his authority? How could they turn away from him and rebel against him in the wilderness? And the question is, you know, for us as believers, and I think for Joshua and Caleb, what problem are big giants to a God who has power to part a sea? I mean, what are fortified cities to a God who speaks with thunder and earthquakes? And, you know, who are giants and fortified cities to a God who is poured manna out for his people every single day out of the sky and caused water to flow out of rocks. Are you guys kidding me? What? You don't think we can trust God with this? And so they witnessed all these things, yet they still don't trust God. They still don't believe his word. I think a lot of them, they, they, they believed it here. They understood, you know, yeah, I think God loves me here. here. It just never made it to here that he really does love me. People, it is a good day in your life when that finally connects, when it gets from here down to here, and you really learn to say, God, I may not understand this, but this I know, you love me. And because you love me, I know that I can trust you with this. The people grumbled and they complained that Joshua and Caleb Let's go back, man. Let's go back to let's go back to Egypt. We were so much better off in Egypt. And they did not believe and know God's heart for them. God didn't bring them out there to destroy them. No, he brought them out to bless them, to liberate them. He loved them. But there was a terrible consequence of their unbelief. Numbers 14. Verse 22 says, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and the wilderness yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to me shall by no means enter the land which I swore to their fathers nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will 
bring into the land which he has entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And you say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to the complete number from 20 years and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you have said would become prey. And I will bring them, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as you, for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness according to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days. For every day you shall bear a guilt of years and 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this, I will do all this for this evil congregation who are gathered together, notice this, against me. In the wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Because when God said today, they said, no way. After all they learned in the wilderness, that they should shrink away from their faith and choose the path of unbelief and rebellion. And the truth is this, is that when they rejected God's word and his love, and his provision, they rejected God himself. And this is the peril of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, verse 16 says, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those who Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So we come back to Jude. Jude uses this experience of Israel's rejection of love and their unbelief to illustrate what the apostates were doing in the church. That they were guilty of doing the very same thing. They're acting like the 10 spies encouraging unbelief, disobedience, and they're encouraging the people that you can return back to Egypt, the place of bondage, through their licentiousness. And just as the 10 spies rejected the truth of God's word and led a whole generation to perish in the wilderness, so these apostates who have rejected the truth of the gospel, we're seeking to turn others away from the truth. And those who had never had it here, never, or had it here but never had it here, would turn away. Because I really believe that's the apostate. Oh, you might get it here, but until you get it here. And they turned away, and the apostates in Jews' days were proven not to be followers. They were followers of lies, who spoke lies, and times denying the truth of Christ who had delivered them from sin. They're denying Christ who came to deliver them. But the obvious result, as Jude writes, is that would they, like those Israelites, continue? Would you listen to these ones? Would you follow these 
ones who would lead you astray? And the conclusion, I think, is that no matter where the culture is at, no matter what lies come our way, no matter what this world tries to normalize, and they try to normalize in the, in the church, we have to remember, people, that God is holy, that he is righteous, and that he calls us as his people to live holy and godly lives for him. Not because we can save ourselves, but because we belong to him. And he has taught us so much. His heart is to love us, to bless us with the riches of heaven. And his word to us, I think, in this generation is hold fast, trust and obey, whether you see it or not. Guard the truth that you've been given. Don't let anyone rob you from it. I mean, what more does God have to do to prove his love for us that he hasn't already done? that he sent us his son Jesus to die on our behalf. He provides the means of our salvation. He's provided the way by which we can be completely forgiven with our sins taken away as far as the east is from the west. There is no connection. I mean, it's gone. He's proven over and over again that his word is true, that he came to save us, not comfort us in our sin. And he's given us the Holy Spirit who convicts and guides and gives us gifts so that we can use. That's the Holy Spirit. And that same gospel that saves sinners back in the early church is the same gospel that I'm saved with, and it's the same one that most of you, I believe, here are saved with. That gospel, that simple one, there's no time to toy with the truth, people. Hold fast. Hold fast. He is faithful to his word, Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Hold fast. We're going to have communion. And I always believed that communion was something that the Lord never wanted us to do as a ritual. It's not something we just do as a matter of formality but it was something he gave us to do with the heart. That when we practice it and when we come together and we have communion, that our heart is really connected with God's heart for us. And in essence, every time we have communion, what we're saying is, Lord, I still trust you. And I still believe you. And I believe that there is no other way than what the way that you have given for me to live than through Jesus, the one who bought me and paid for me. This morning, believer, I want you to hold on to what you've been given. What you have been given, hold fast. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Jude. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you join us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.